people there. All right, well, let's uh, continue on in our passage in Hosea. You can go ahead and open up to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. We've been 10 chapters going through Hosea already, and maybe right as, as we've been studying, we, we've recognized just the seriousness of, of uh, the judgments that were coming upon Israel because of their wickedness and their sin. Right, Hosea has been teaching us just about the holiness and the justice of God that he really does uh, punish evildoers. At the same time, we've been seeing the, the heart and the compassion of God towards, towards the wicked. And maybe, as, maybe for some of us, as we've been reading through Hosea, maybe, maybe some of us are kind of confused. Right? We see God who is, who is, is definitely right, angry at sinners and God who is compassionate towards sinners as well. And maybe it might seem that God is unpredictable in that way, just unsure how he's going to respond. Uh, in, in high school, I had a teacher who was, um, he just didn't know how he would respond. One day, he would be like the gentlest, nicest teacher that couldn't hurt a fly. And then, and then the next day, you know, you'll hear about him getting angry at the class and hurling erasers at, 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 at the students. And this is the day when, when it was chalk. And, you know, those, those kind of erases that erase chalk. And so he was someone that you didn't know if you're going to get his wrath one day or if you'd get, like, the, the most gentlest, uh, quiet, soft-spoken teacher. And maybe for some people, they can see, they might think God is like that, where one, one, one moment he's uh, filled with wrath, punishing sinners, and the next moment he's compassionate and, 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 and rescuing uh, sinners. Well, God is not like that in the sense where he's, uh, you just don't know what he's going to do as if he's just going off of a whim or just really emotionally driven. No, God is perfect in his judgment. He's perfect in his wrath. And he's perfect in his compassion. And he's perfect in his kindness. And we see both of these aspects reflected in Hosea. God is not human in the sense that, right, the way that sinful humans will act is, is they can at times be, be really nice one moment and something sets them off and they're, they're flying off the handle the next moment. But God is not like that. Right? He perfectly, perfectly responds in wrath and in mercy and kindness. And, and Hosea is showing us um, these, these different uh, characteristics of God. Maybe some of us have been feeling like, man, like, what does God feel towards me right now? And we feel like God is, is pouring out his anger towards us. Maybe we've been living in ways that we know we shouldn't, and we just kind of are not sure how, how is God thinking about me right now. Well, we're going to be looking at chapter 11, and what we're going to see is the heart of God towards Israel. And then I think what that does is it's like an arrow pointing us to the heart of God towards his redeemed children. So we're going to be looking at God's heart when, as it comes to his children, us, those who have trusted in faith through Christ. As we look at this moment in history where God was both disciplining and judging at the same time, showing compassion towards, towards Israel. In this moment in chapter 11, there's going to be these, these pictures of God's fatherly heart towards Israel. So let's jump right into it as we think about God the Father and we as his children. Verse when it reads, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. 
the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Here, God relates Israel to him as his child. Notice that the intimate language here. When Israel was a child, I called him out of Egypt. I called my son. God could have said, I called my servant, in which they are their words to be his servant, and, and we are his servant. Right? He could have said that. I called my servant, and it would be totally right. But God chose to use not servant, but he chose to use family terms. I called my son. He viewed Israel as his son. We know that in the New Testament, God, uh, the Bible teaches us, like in Romans, that God adopted us into his family through Christ. So he wants to relate to us as family members. Another way to look at it is God created right, family. He created uh, fathers and mothers and, and, and children. And these, these, these beautiful relationships are to reflect and point us to the ultimate family relationship with, with him. What that could mean for us, right, is, right, some of us had hard, difficult, challenging family experiences. Other of us had pleasant ones. For us, we had hard family relationships where fathers and mothers were not representing the love of God, where fathers and mothers were not kind and compassionate and loving the way that God is. Well, for us, that's a reminder that they are not the ultimate parent, that God is the ultimate father. And so we can take our comfort and hope knowing that, yes, maybe our earthly parents were not this way, but we don't miss out because we have the ultimate father who loves us as his own. Others of us, we may have had just healthy uh, parents growing up who loved us uh, the way that God loved us. Not perfect by any means, but who were was generally caring and nurturing and supportive. And, and what that means for us is we can thank God for them, but it also reminds us that they're just arrows, in a sense, pointing us to the greater parent, and that is the Father. And so we, in a sense, look beyond these good parents that we have to the ultimate parent, God, who gave us those parents in order to point us to him and to teach us about who he is. God wants to relate to us as his children, and he our father. And it is a relationship of love, verse 1. But Israel rejected it, as we saw in verse 2. Instead, they turned away from God, and they sacrificed to the idols. Verse 3 reads, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by my arms. Hear God's just tender words. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with a band of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Right? God stooped down. He went to their level. It reminds me of Philippians 2, where Jesus talks about right. he became uh, a servant. He bent down in order to serve us. Here we see God's nurturing language. This idea of provision. God wants us, his children, to experience 
His provision. His provision. See here, he, he did things like he taught them how to walk. He took them up by their arms right, in closeness. He healed them. He was kind to them, freed them from their slavery with bands of love. He was their ultimate provider and was so tender towards them. I was reading this, it reminded me of my own father when he was sick, just really, really sick in the hospital and just laying on the bed, unable to get up. And when I went to visit him, uh, I would think, you know, like I'm out to help my father and just like comfort him and, and be by him. But when I was with him, he like was trying to hand me something. And I look, and I was living on my own at the time, and you know, poor college student. And there he was handing me a $20 bill because he knew I was flat broke as a college student. And here he is just in the hospital suffering, and he's trying to figure out how can I provide for my son because he needs money, the poor college student. Right? And that just showed me the heart of God, that where, where, where the father he is so just consumed with how can I provide? How can I support? How can I give to my child who is in need? And here we see just the father is just uh, looking at just so many different ways that he is caring for Israel. God, too, provides for us, his children. I know so, far, uh, so often I forget that. I forget that God has provided so many things in my life, and I can attribute it to so many other different things, right? whether it's the circumstance, oh, like lucky that happened, or other people that God uses. And I can put my focus on, on them. I can attribute you know, a blessing to my own abilities or to my own skill or to my own uh, uh, hard work. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, James 1 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights. And just like Israel, who forgets that it was God who provided for them, I know I can forget that God provides everything in my life. Maybe we're feeling like, gosh, like, like we need something and God's not giving it to us. We need something in our relationship. We need something in our own personal lives. We need something uh, financially or something in our workplace. And why isn't God providing us? And we, we almost feel like um, he's holding out on us. But the Bible teaches us that, that he, he, he doesn't hold out on his children. He doesn't with, withhold. Like Paul tells us in Romans that he gave us his one and only son. So why would he not along with him give us all things? Second Peter 1 verse 3 says this about his provision. If we ever feel like he is holding out on us. It says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by His own goodness and glory. Right? He's given us everything. may not be everything that we want, but everything that we need to follow Him, to enjoy Him, and to serve Him in this life, He has given us everything that we need. And so we can rest knowing that our Heavenly Father not only wants to provide for us, but He does provide everything that we need in this life to live by His grace. He is our great, our great provider as our Father. But even with this, Israel did not return to God. Even though He was providing for them every step of the way. Let's, let's go ahead and read on in verse 5. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. 
because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebulun? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Again, here, here you see the heart of God. Again, you see his perfect judgment that he is a God of justice. He must punish evildoers. At the same time, we see his perfect compassion and mercy, where he's, his heart yearns for his people and for his people to turn back to him because they have turned away from him and entrusted and trusted the other nations. And pretty soon the the superpower of the time, Assyria, is going to come and is going to destroy and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and take them away to captivity. And yet God will not give up ultimately on his people that he will ultimately bring his people back into the land after the second captivity in Babylon. That even though they experience his judgment, they also experience his mercy because God is committed to them. That's what we experience as his child. We experience the commitment of God towards his children that he will not forsake us. But again, I'm sure we've all had people in our lives that we've trusted, friends, family members, right? And we thought, you know, they told us, we'll always get your back, we'll always be there, right? And something happened and they just split. They're gone. They're not there, right? And we've felt the pain of broken promises and broken commitments, right? And it hurts, it stings, and... And it's hard to trust uh, other people when we experience those kinds of uh, broken commitments. But think about this. Even the most committed person in our life, a spouse, a parent, a child, a, um, a family member, or a best friend, even the closest people in our lives cannot fully commit to us, if you think about it. The reason why is death separates, in a sense, everybody, right? I could say that I'm committed to someone. Like, I'm, I'll be there. If you're in trouble, I'll be there. I promise I'll be, I'll, I'll be there. Or you can count on me. But I cannot control whether or not I live or, buy, or die tomorrow. Right? The Lord alone knows all the days of, of, of my life in, in his book, the psalmist tells us. So I can make all the commitments, have all the greatest intentions, you know, towards, towards Trisha, towards my kids, towards uh, uh, any of you. But... But ultimately, right, the Bible calls us, we are but a mist, here today, gone tomorrow. And so ultimately, I cannot 100% guarantee to be there for someone. And neither could, could any of you, right? Death can separate us in that way on this earth. But it can't separate God. 
God is the one, the only one, who can truly say, right, they'll be there for us tomorrow. They'll be there for us tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, because God does not die. And that is good news. God tells Joshua in the Old Testament, right, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, Joshua 1. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And we might say, well, he said that to Joshua. Right? That's Israel's leader. Of course, he's going to stick by Joshua. He's super important. But what about me? I'm not, I'm not that important. I'm not Joshua. But then the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 13 takes, Joshua's, right, takes Joshua 1 and appropriates it to the church. And in Hebrews chapter 13, right, Jesus says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And that's applied to us, his people. And so we have this commitment by God. And we see this reflected in Hosea chapter 11, where God, right, he, he's, he's, he's going to bring judgment down on Israel, but he's committed to them. He's committed to them. And we as his redeemed people have God's commitment to us, where Paul himself says in Philippians 1, right, he who is faithful, right, he who began a good work is faithful to complete it. He is committed to see us through to the very end. And that should give us such great comfort and confidence and hope, knowing that, that other people can let us down, but God will never let us down. Other people may not be there tomorrow, but God will be there tomorrow. And he is 100% out for our good as our Heavenly Father. We can trust Him. He is fully committed to us. It reads on in verse 10. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When He roars, His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves to the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So Israel is going to go into captivity. They're going to experience judgment because they're not going to turn back to, uh, to God. But God is going to call them back like a lion roaring and, and, and the animals responding to the lion. Like birds returning from Egypt, from Assyria. He will bring his people back into the land. And then verse 12, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. You see, at, at this time, the, the northern kingdom was way more wicked than the southern kingdom, Judah. Judah was following God. They did have their issues. But eventually, Judah too will turn away from God and they will be taken into Babylonian captivity after the northern kingdom does. So both kingdoms ultimately will be, will be taken away and will be taken into exile. But God here promises them, even before the exiles happen, that he will bring them back into the land. Why? It's not because they deserve it, but because God is a God of grace. He is a God of grace. And that's how God interacts with us. That's how we experience uh, being a child of God. It is all based upon His unearned 
favor. That's grace. His unearned favor. We did nothing to deserve him treating us as his children. Just as Israel. Because when Israel entered, was about to enter the land, they were told by Moses, it's not because you are more righteous than these other nations. It's not because you're so great and big that, that, that you're coming to the land. But it's because God chose them. God decided to place his love on, on Israel and, and, and bring them into the land. It wasn't because they were more moral. It wasn't because they were more special. It wasn't because they had done and accomplished more as a nation. They were so small compared to the other nations. It was because of God's choosing to do so out of his grace that they were brought into the land. That's like an arrow pointing, pointing and teaching us about our own salvation with the Lord. That we too did not earn our being in God's family. We didn't earn uh, being, being born into God's family. We didn't earn salvation. We didn't do anything that God would say, well, you're smart, I'm going to let you in. You're talented, I'm going to let you in. You've done good in your life, I'm going to let you in. God wasn't looking out into the future thinking, how, you know, how, uh, how talented is this, this guy going to be? How good is this guy going to be? And then I'll choose them. No, he chose us to be in his family purely based upon his choice, his grace, so that there's nothing that we can boast about. There's nothing. We can't say, oh, I was, I was so smart when I heard the gospel. That's why he saved me. I was so humble because I received the gospel while my friend, he, didn't, he rejected Jesus, but I was so humble. I recognize that I'm a sinner. It's all me. That's why he chose me. That's why he forgave me, because I got it. I was smart enough to get it. No. Right? Even that was an act of grace by God. He chose us because he chose us. And what that leads us to is humility, right? Just being floored by God's redeeming love towards us. There's nothing we can brag or boast about. But all we can simply do is, is with gratitude worship him because of his grace that he poured out on us. And we see that grace ultimately shining forth in the gospel where, where God gave us Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's grace. We didn't deserve it. We were rebelling against God. Jesus died for sinners. He took the punishment on the cross that we deserve. We deserve this Assyrian um, uh, attack. We deserve being taken into captivity, but the eternal captivity because of our sin and rebellion against God. And the reason why we don't experience eternal captivity is because Jesus took it for us. In a sense, he was exiled so that we could be brought into his family. And Jesus rose again from the dead, right, showing us that God accepted his sacrifice and that those who have trusted in him will too rise and be with him. And so that's what we celebrate and that's what we rest in today as followers of Jesus that we're here this afternoon, that we are in the family of God purely by grace alone. There's no boasting but humble gratitude towards God. 
And we're going to celebrate that in a little while as we take communion. And so I want to encourage us, right, as followers of Jesus, that, that we're reminded of God's grace towards us through the, 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 the act of participation of communion, where we receive the cup of juice and, and, and the cracker. Right? We, we don't pay for it. We receive it because it's grace. And if you're at home, you can gather those elements. And we, we eat of it. We eat of the cracker representing his body. We drink of the juice representing his, his blood. And it's a reminder that we're receiving freely by grace. We're not earning it. It's, it's faith. And, and, and we celebrate that Jesus gave up his life for us. He went into exile so that we would be brought home. And so we, we worship him in this act of remembering what he has done. He is the true, uh, true Israel who, as we saw in verse 1, he was called out of Egypt as a child. And where Israel failed in the desert, as, as Israel was called out of Egypt and they, 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 they failed in obeying God, they grumbled and complained and worshipped idols, Jesus, right, the true Israel, came out of Egypt and obeyed the Father perfectly in every single way. And so we celebrate that as we take communion. And secondly, a way that we can worship God and we can, we can advance this good news to the local church, one of the ways we can, we can do that is through financial giving. And you can do that on our website at harbornewanu.org. Let's go ahead and pray now. Let's pray that we continue to, to rest in and live from and share this good news that God has adopted us into his family through Christ and we can experience him as the loving father that he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is our Savior and our King. Thank you that you, you want us to be in your family. So much so that you gave your one and only Son to bring us in. That he went into exile so that we could be brought in. Home. So if we're struggling to believe in that, Lord, remind us, point us back to the cross where your love was clearly displayed. May we rest in this good news that we to share it with others in our lives. May we pray all these things in Christ's name. So encourage us as we respond to this.